I do want to repeat what I said. We're in the middle of chapter 24, and I want to repeat what I said about knowledge having a pervasive effect on our personality. That learning something new is not just about adding something into your storehouse. It's about changing who you are as a person. So much so that if somebody forgot something that they learned, still the effect will be part of their personality. And that's why, if God forbid a Torah scholar forgot what he learned, we still accord them the respect of a person of his stature because we assume that his knowledge has pervaded his personality and become part of who he is. And this works, of course, for the better and, God forbid, for the worse. That's why we stay away from knowing things we don't want to know because knowledge, ever since the experience of the tree of knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, exactly, knowledge has become a subjective experience. So knowledge is not just another something going inside of you. Knowledge is an integrative experience that changes us. Now, uh, as far as what we're learning in this chapter, the effect of, God forbid, if somebody transgresses the will of Hashem. So it reminds me of the story that Viktor Frankl writes in his book where an American doctor comes to his office and says, tell me, doctor, can you exp- what are you? Are you a, a psychoanalyst? And he said, no, not exactly a psychoanalyst. Let's call it a psychotherapist. And so he said, okay, so in like one line, can you describe how your theory is different than psychoanalysis? So imagine, just to find it in one line, like an entire structure of something, right? So he throws back at him. He says, well, can you first define for me in one line what psychoanalysis is? So he said, yes, okay. Psychoanalysis is having to lie down in the doctor's couch and tell things which might be very disagreeable to tell. So then he throws back at him. He says, well, then logotherapy is able to be sitting upright in the chair and having to listen to things that are sometimes very disagreeable to listen to. <laughs> so it's not about like telling things, it's about being, getting a new awareness of what happens when a person decides to transgress the will of Hashem. And this is not about hell and all of that. This is about something totally different. This is about already going against the core of who we are as a person. We have to remember who we are essentially, and going against the will of Hashem means going against our very essence. We got to the point where we said, we started off by saying, that this is the opposite the other. Just like during the Torah and mitzvah experience, a person fuses with the divine, during the violation of Hashem's will, a person's animal soul fuses with the powers of evil, with the sitra and the klipa achara. The, the, the klipa and the sitra achara. This is what happens to a person when they transgress the will of Hashem. So we thought that was bad enough, right? That they're so debased that their animal soul fuses, the animal soul and its garment fuses with the klipa and the sitra achra, okay? That's pretty bad. Hi! But then we said, what's worse? What's worse than that is he actually becomes worse than they. Do you remember why he becomes worse than they? He becomes worse than they because they never go against the will of God. And he is transgressing the will of God. They know who their master is and they don't rebel. And he is rebelling. Free will. Free will. So, so first we said, okay, he, he, in this act of Avera, his animal soul fuses with the klipa, the sitra achra. That's so bad. But then it said, he's even worse than that. Now we can take this knowledge and use it really to um, 
help us in our mission. The Baal Shem Tov has this amazing parable. He says like this, because now, now we know that the Klippa and Sitra do nothing of their own accord, right? Anything that they do is only within the control of Hashem. They never act against the will of Hashem. Now, to reiterate and to emphasize, it doesn't mean that they're good guys. They're bad guys, and they even get pleasure in the evil that they perpetrate, but they're not able to, able to perpetrate any evil without the divine will. Only a human being has the power to defy Hashem's will. Knowing that they have no, not able to pursue an agenda of their own is very enlightening. And the Baal Shem Tov says like this, a king wanted to test his subjects to see who's loyal. So he takes one of his servants, he dresses him up in the royal garments, and he says, now go out and stage or incite a rebellion. So the, the servant goes out and he incites a rebellion and there's the good guys and the bad guys. So the bad guys are like, yeah, away with the king, we're going to take this guy. And the good guys are like, no, of course not, we're on the king's side. But then one smart guy didn't get involved in any of that. He wasn't one of the guys who was fighting. He wasn't one of the guys who was, who was uh, defending. He walked over to the servant and he said, listen, both you and I know that you are just a messenger of the king. When you are aware that the Khalifa and Sitch are nothing other than staging a rebellion, then that's it. How Rabbi Steinzel puts it, then at that point there's no Satan, there's no angel of death. It's all over. It's over because you realize they have no agenda of their own. They have no power of their own. Instead of falling for the feud and for the stage rebellion, remember they have no power of their own. So they, as bad as they are, there's a level to them. The level to them is that they never rebel against the king. But now let's see what happens to the person who does rebel against Hashem. So we are on page. Not follow the Torah or go, yeah, this is for you. It's great to see you. Rebel means to recall any of the prohibitive commands. God says, honor your parents. They, they're not honoring their parents. God says, keep Shabbat. They're not keeping Shabbat. God said, eat kosher. God said, don't gossip. All these things, anytime a person goes against the will of God, they become attached to the Klippa and the Sitra Achra. And not only that, they become worse. Because the Klippa and Sitra Achra never rebel against Hashem. Remember we said, quoting Bilam, he said, I cannot violate the word of God. But a person who does commit one of these prohibitions actually is violating the word of God. He becomes lower than the Klippa and the Sitra Achra. So we are on page, I know somebody's going to be able to remind me before I get three. to three. Okay. Are we on the top of the page? We did the first line. The first line in English, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I'm actually going to go back to the bottom of page two to, to keep, give this, keep this thought together. Although the Klippites are called Avaidazara, idolatry, which is a denial of God, yet they refer to him as the God of gods, indicating that they do not deny him completely. So Klippa, on one hand, consider, it's, 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 it's considered like idol worship. Why is it considered idol worship? Because remember, with the principle of the unity of God, that there's no other existence besides for Hashem, Klippa considers itself to be in existence. They say there's God, 
but he's the God of gods, and I'm God, another God. I have an existence of my own. There's Hashem, and I agree that he's the ruler, and he's the master over everything. He's the one who controls everything, and yet, Khalifa says there's an existence besides for him. So that's why they're called <coughs> idol worship, because they consider themselves to be an entity apart, something separate. They never, though, deny the sovereignty of God. They never say God is not the master over everything. What they do say is there's God, he's the master over everything, but then there's other things that have power in this world. Okay, this is a very loaded sentence. I don't think we spent a lot of time on it last week. That's why I went back. They cannot violate, thank you so much, they cannot violate God's will, for they know and perceive that he is their life and sustenance, since they derive the nur- their nurture from the hindermost aspect of the divine will which encompasses them. So one thing is, they are able to sense where their life force comes from. It is only here in this physical world that we receive life from God, and yet we do not overtly sense that the life force comes from him. That is due to physicality. Physicality hides the spiritual. Physicality means it obstructs where the source of energy comes from. Anything that is spiritual, including evil, and Klipa and Sitra Ahura, see where their life force comes from. So that's exactly what the Alter Rebbe says over here. They cannot rebel against it because they, they set, know and perceive that he is their life and sustenance because they derive their nurture from, and we said the hindermost part, Actually, in the translation, they say the hindermost part. But if you look at the Hebrew, it's a little bit more than the hindermost part. I'm sorry, one second. They say, The hindermost part of the hindermost part of Hashem's will. And if you remember when we talked about levels of will, the hindermost part of something's, somebody's will is something that they want to do. They're doing it, it's their will. So they're doing it because they want to do it but yet they hate the act that they're doing. They're only doing it in order to achieve something benefit. But the act of itself, they hate. It's actually contrary to their will, but they're doing it in order to achieve some purpose. So there are klipas that are so far and distant from Hashem that not are only they are the hindermost part of His will, they are the hindermost part of the hindermost part of His will. And how distant they are from Hashem, they never rebel against Him because they know that he is their life force. It's only in the physical world that, that there can be a being that doesn't even see what they get their energy from. Rebel meaning they don't do the purpose of their creation. The, the klipa never does something that is contrary to God's will. Or even for the klipa. Yeah, even for the klipa. Like we discussed last week, yeah. we discussed last week that came to the destruction of the temple, right? So the Talmud recounts that Hashem was as if crying when the temple was destroyed. And yet it was his will, so much so that the prophet calls Nebuchadnezzar, the bad guy who destroyed the temple, bad guy is even a nice word for him. We can't even have a bad word enough for him. And he calls him Avdi, my servant. He calls him my servant because in destroying the holy temple, he was actually fulfilling the will of Hashem. The will of Hashem? How could you call it the will of Hashem? It was part of the divine plan although it was painful, and Hashem himself was crying because he hated that act. And yet, they are never able, the klipa is never able to do something that's not on the divine agenda. So now, if they can never do anything that's not on the divine agenda, 
because they see where their life force is from, how are they able to consider themselves an existence apart? This seems to be a paradox. They see where their life force comes from. What makes them have this assertion that there's God and then there's me, I have an existence apart? So it's because of the way, where they get their life force from. Remember we said that when, somebody gets their, when something gets their life force from the hindermost aspects of God's will, it means that there's no relationship going on. It's as in the example of the guy throwing the, something over his shoulder to his enemy because he doesn't want to give it to him. As opposed to, so that's where there's no relationship, opposed to where there is relationship. Where is their relationship? Let's say you're explaining your children's studies to them. You're doing homework. You're giving to them, and you're giving to them in a way that you desire it. So when you give it in a way that you desire, you relate to them and you bring it to them in a level that they relate to and understand and becomes permeated to them. When somebody is throwing something over their shoulder, there's no relationship. They don't have any personal connection. So the energy that they get from Hashem is from his hindermost aspect of will. It remains aloof from them. They don't feel a relationship. So although they know, they perceive where it comes from, they don't, it doesn't affect them. They admit it, but they don't feel it in a way that it affects them. Now, we said that there were two, two levels of divine energy. This came up before. And again, if you look at the end of the previous sentence that we just finished, we said, Hamakif alehem, which encompasses them. And that's the way that the energy uh, gives life to the klipa, is it in a way that it encompasses them. Encompasses means that there's no direct relationship, it remains aloof and apart. But it's not possible for there to be anything existent in this world that doesn't have at least some minute level of divine energy, energy within it. Not just in an encompassing fashion, it has to be in an imminent fashion too. So the klipa is this paradox. It knows that all its energy comes from Hashem. And yet it considers itself an existence to be an existence apart. Why is that? Because it receives its energy from the most external aspect of God's will. There's no relationship there. And it encompasses them. It remains aloof from them. It doesn't affect them. But there still has to be a minute level of energy that goes within them. So now the Altar explains that indeed they do. But it's in a different way. It is only the sustenance and life force that is within them, meaning the internal life force, which constitutes the identity of every created being, as we learned in chapter 22, that is in a state of exile. So they regard themselves as gods, which is a denial of God's unity. So the little bit of energy that they have absorbed within themselves at this point is in exile. In exile meaning it's there, but it cannot serve its own self. It has to serve an enemy. And not just that, it cannot be revealed. The example that we gave last time was the example of the human soul becoming incarnated in an animal's body. So it's there, God forbid. So it's there, it's giving the animal life, and yet it finds no expression. And this is what's happening with a little bit of life force that is giving life with, internally within the klipa. It's there, but it's in state of captivity, cannot find any expression at all. Still, Still, 
But they are not so completely heretical as to deny God and to assert that he does not exist. On the contrary, they regard him as the God of gods, recognizing that their life and existence ultimately derive from his will. Therefore, they never rebel against God's will. So this is the klipa and the sitra achra. They are ugly, evil, everything bad you can call them. And they, the thing with them is that they never rebel against Hashem. As low down as they are, as much as they feel themselves to be a god, they know that God is the God of gods. They recognize, although they think of themselves as being a separate existence, they never think that God is not the master over everything. They know and recognize that Hashem is the master of everything, okay? Now we're going to contrast that with the sinner, a person who sins. How he is unfortunately more lower and more debased than the klipa. Now, uh, this is not scare tactics. <laughs> the reason why we're understanding this is so that, because we want to be able to trigger our internal mechanism. Remember we said that a Jewish person has this deepest point within themselves, that if they were forced to either give up God or die, they will just die. And this is proven throughout Jewish history. This is not something theoretical. Throughout history, time and time again, people who lived irreligious lives, immoral lives, all of a sudden it came, you know, God forbid, the Crusades and these things. They were just, they, they were adulterers. They were murderers or whatever they were doing. Bad things, really bad things. And, and all of a sudden it was like, okay, convert or die. And they died. Why? Because at their innermost, truest self, they never, ever want to separate from God. And so at that point, their innermost aspect of the soul, the Chachma Shebenefesh, gets triggered. And then they feel it in themselves that I never want to do this. It's just this gut reaction. I cannot separate myself from Hashem. But we have to understand, we're trying to trigger ourselves so that we are aware of our relationship to Hashem and how important it is to us. We forget how important our relationship with Hashem is to us. We're, we have this relationship with him that is so close that we're willing to die rather than be separated from him. We would never want to be separated from him. And yet, when it comes to a day-to-day -day level, people say, well, this is what God wants, and then this is what I want. Okay, so he said, you know, don't do this or don't do that. But, you know, unfortunately, I just I have a different agenda. I'm not up to that. We're trying to trigger our awareness that ultimately every act of not following the will of Hashem means idol worship. And as soon as our gut equates that, we'll have the same gut reaction to gossip as we do to idol worship. It has to be an awareness that's not just intellectual, but that's emotional. It like, the same way that there's an emotional response to an idol, it's just like visceral and you, it's natural to who you are, we're trying to trigger that with every other. So the Imkain. Adam Ha'ivar al it follows then that the person who does violate God's will is greatly inferior to and more debased than the Klipa and Sishra which are called the Vodazara and other gods. He is separated completely from God's unity and oneness even more than they are as though denying his unity even more radically than they, God forbid. So where does this come from? How is it possible that a person invest in this world is able to deny God's unity more than the klipas? And that's because of the, the barrier that we have. 
The klipa ultimately is a spiritual entity, and so it knows its source. Us being in this physical world have this blinders, this condition that it's complete concealment of the countenance, we can actually go against his will. And now the altar is going to bring from the Arizal to explain how does this condition come about, that a person can even be more lower and more debased than the Klippas. Ukemaisha kasav be'etz chayim sharam and be'etz, saif perak dalad, sheharasha ba'ilam haza ha'chumri hu shmari ha'klippas ha'gases chule, hu tachlis v'hu tachlis ha'birim chule. This is similar to what is written in Eitz Chaim, Portal 42, end of chapter 4, that the evil in this corporeal world is the dregs of the coarse klippot. It is the sediment of the purifying process and so on. Meaning, after whatever sparks of good that are found in the klipot have been isolated and elevated, what remains is klipa in its lowest, coarsest form. This klipa is the evil found in this material world. So let's look at, they're saying, the purifying process. Let's look at the purifying process. Somebody is in the jewelry business. They're, they're making silver necklaces. So they take the silver from the earth, and there's a lot of impurities. So they have to like boil it down or whatever. I don't know exactly all the terminology. And they separate the, the pure silver from the dirt, from the debris. But still, within the debris, there's still some silver. So then they take the debris, they do the process all over again. And again, and again. What comes, that's the klipa. The klipa has a higher existence in the higher worlds. When it comes down to this world, it's the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the purifying process. At this point, it's like just the dregs. It's like the garbage of the garbage. That's, this is from the Eitz Chaim. This is from the works of Rabbi Chaim Vital from the Arizal, explaining that in this world, it's the grossest, coarsest form of the klipas. They're the most vulgar in this world. And so then we have the condition of this world. What's the condition of this world? For this reason, all matters of this world are harsh and evil, and the wicked prevail in it, and so forth. So our world has a very difficult condition. It has a condition of extreme hester panim, concealment of the countenance. In this world is the place where we can actually not perceive where our divine energy comes from at all. And we see, physically speaking, it says that the wicked prevail because this world is a world of trial. Right from the very beginning, after the sin of the first man, it's bezeas apecha techa you shall eat by the sweat of your brow. Part and parcel of the package of this living life in this world is struggle. We have no other choice. I mean, raise your hand if you live without any struggles. <laughs> it's just not possible. That's not part of our life condition. Part of our life condition, being in this lowest world, is having to struggle all the time. And wanting to accomplish good things and then having to combat things in order to overcome the hurdles, in order to achieve good things. And that's because of the extreme level of hesterpanim that is in this world. That's part of the divine plan. But this world has klipas that are of the lowest, lowest level. So I'm going to summarize what we said until now, and we're going to move to the next section, which I think will answer your question, Dee. So what we said until now was the klipa never rebels against Hashem. And therefore, the person who does rebel against Hashem, because the klipa considers itself in existence, but it never goes against Hashem's will. A person who transgresses is going against Hashem's will. He's worse than the klipa. And how is it possible? How is a person even able to? Because in this world, there's an extreme 
level of hiddenness. And the klipa in this world is of such a low level, it is the ultimate of the purifying process. It's the garbage of the garbage of the garbage. After the whole process, that's the kind of coarse klipa we have in this world, and that's what allows for the, the scoundrels to abound in this world. And that's why it's more difficult to achieve goodness, because we have to go against these formidable klipas in this world. Now, why does a person ever sin? So the Alt Rebbe is now going to say that any time a person sins, it is actually because he's overcome by temporary insanity. <laughs> Nobody ever sins unless they went crazy. Oh, good. <laughs> That's a good excuse. <laughs> the lawyer says it's a good defense. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Her name's Devorah? No, I said the lawyer. Oh. The lawyer says it's a good defense. That's, we plead insanity. And this is what's coming up right now. This explains the commentary of our sages on the verse, if a man's wife turns aside and commits adultery. No man ever commits adultery, uh, transgression unless a spirit of folly has entered into him. Here, the term used is kisiste ishtai, if his wife shall turn aside. So you can use other words to say that same phrase, or even if you want to word, use the word siste, you can spell it with a samach. It's specifically spelt with a shin to allude to the other meaning of the word siste, which is stus, insanity. Nobody ever commits a sin, ever. No matter which kind of sin, we never commit a sin unless we've been overcome by insanity. Now, while we love that defense, <laughs> does it really make any sense? No, people sin because they have a desire. They, they sin because they, 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 there's something overcome by lust or they're too lazy. What makes it that they've been insane in order to sin? So now we're going to visit the temporary insanity of the adulterous woman. And it's not just the adulterous woman, it's any sin. This, this uh, um, is learned from the adulterous woman because it alludes to our relationship with Hashem. Mm -hmm. We are Hashem's wife, and any time that we sin, God forbid, it's like an act of adultery. It's me masechet or it's like in the time. Oh, this ain't uh, ed, the fact that a person never sins no, unless the adultery, the woman adultery. Oh, the fact. Why you're saying your question is? Does it come from masechet saita that yeah. it? No, the Rebbe points this out. The Rebbe points oh, out that the reason why, because. I mean, adultery is a pretty big sin. We should use a smaller sin to explain that you never do any sin, even this very small sin, unless it's, you're overcome by a spirit of insanity. But it's specifically this case because it alludes to our relationship with Hashem. Mm. That we are Hashem's wife and any sin is really unfaithfulness to Hashem, to our, to our husband. So why is she crazy? What makes this, she's giving into her passions. Why is she crazy? For even an adulterous woman with her frivolous nature could have controlled her passionate drive were if not for the spirit of folly within her. Which covers and conceals the hidden love within her divine soul that yearns to cleave to her faith in God and to his unity and oneness, that resists 
even on the pain of death, any separation from his unity through idol worship, even this adulteress would willingly sacrifice his life, her life rather than submit to coercion to practice idolatry. So here's a woman who is committing adultery. This same woman would die rather than bow down to an idol. But she's overcome with insanity because she doesn't realize that every single time she goes against the will of Hashem, she is as if committing idolatry. Idolatry meaning separating herself from the oneness of Hashem. Now, what we said last week was that the act of the Avera represents total separation from Hashem. The act of idol worship represents total separation from Hashem. A person who bows down to an idol is submitting and clinging to something that represents total separation from Hashem. Well, what is somebody doing when they're committing an Avera? They are clinging to their divine, their animal soul, not their divine soul. Their animal soul is clinging to this spirit of impurity that represents total separation from Hashem. So this adulterous woman is crazy. She's not realizing that while she would be giving up her life rather than bow down to an idol, now she's going and committing adultery, which is rendering her separate from Hashem. So the animal soul is clinging to the klipa. That's right. And there's an estate of total separation in the act of an Avera. During the act of an Avera, the animal soul is in state of total separation from Hashem, just like a person is when they, they bow down to an idol. And the reason that she is able to commit adultery is because this folly is covering up her entire, almost her entire divine soul. It covers up everything of the divine soul up until the Chachma Shabbat What happens is when a person is steeped in materialism, then... Everything up to Chachma, including the Bina of the soul, the, the level of comprehension, and Da'as, the level of application, the divine soul is kind of distracted. At that point, it's just steeped in materialism, and so it's covered up. It does not sense its corest and deepest truth that it would never, ever want to be ripped apart from Hashem. In fact, I saw in this very interesting book by Rav Yitzchak Ginsburg, The Art of Education, he was saying that an educator has to realize at any time we educate a child or educate ourselves, we educate anybody, we have to realize the corest, most deepest, I'm making up this word corest, <laughs> the most essential, deepest wish of any Jew. Our most essential wish is to achieve <coughs> unity with Hashem. And until we don't recognize that, we cannot meet our needs. We have to realize that at our very core, that's who we are. Like you say, oh, it's so hard never to commit an avera. Actually, it's much harder to commit an Avera because at that point, we're betraying ourself. We don't realize that. In the act of an Avera, we're betraying ourself. When a person says, oh my gosh, put my own will aside and just, and just do the will of Hashem, that's so difficult. No, put your own will aside and do the will of Hashem is the most freeing, exhilarating space you can be. At that point, you're just a channel for the divine. At that point, you manifest only the divine will and you have no agenda. There's no uncomfortability. There's no hurt involved. It's just being a complete channel for the divine. And what we're so crazy when we do an Avera is because we don't realize we're hurting ourselves at our core. We're doing exactly what we never wanted to do. A, a, a Jew would die rather than separate from Hashem. And yet in the act of Avera, he's separating from Hashem and he's doing it blindly. It doesn't mean that he consents to go against Hashem. He's not consenting to go against Hashem. He doesn't realize. He's in a state of, like we said, insanity. Polarizing. Bless you. Polarizing. In one moment, you 
really want to do that, but you're choosing that. Like you're going up, you're being pulled in opposite directions. So say that again when you say it's polarizing. Well, your true self wants to have unity with Hashem. You would sacrifice your life for him. But in that very, like that's the underlying truth. Yeah. In that moment, you're going in the opposite direction, God forbid, and choosing potentially, again, God forbid, to do the opposite. So it's a total, it's a total dissonance. Yeah. On one, they're doing exactly opposite of what they really want. But we don't even realize that. We don't realize the craziness and the spirit of insanity that's happening when a person commits a, a dozen avera. Can I ask you a question? Sure. <clears throat> this may sound childlike, but um, are there levels of, like there's levels of sins and levels of punishment or? Thank you for that question. And it's coming up. Like if, you know, adultery versus turning a light on on Shabbos. Right. And so... We're going to examine those on both levels. We're going to, this is coming up in this chapter about the difference, because we see that there is something of it is considered a bigger Avera or a smaller Avera. You can only, it's on, on one level, it's all the same. On the other level, they're different. And we're going to discuss both levels. This is an example that Rabbi Steinsaltz gives. During a time of war, a person can be executed for the smallest act that could seem to be treason. The person forgets to say the right passcode, or the person is a spy. At that point, because it's this height of tension, it's all the same. After the war is over, then they're court-martialed. And then they say, well, this guy, he just forgot the password, so you know, he, he deserves this. And this guy, he, he was a spy, he deserves death. But at the time of war, it's all the same. So when it comes to the act of the Avera, at that time you have to realize no matter what Avera it is, if it's turning on the light on Shabbos, if it's adultery, at that point it's separating from the will of Hashem. It's all the will of Hashem. And at the inner core we can't differentiate. We actually can't differentiate. There's a level where we do differentiate, but then we go to the essential characterization of what a sin is, and at that point they're all the same. Sin means rebel against Hashem. I don't care which sin. I don't care if it's gossip. I don't care if it's turning the light on Shabbos. I don't care if it's eating ham. I don't care if it's killing. At that point, at that level, they're all the same. That's what we have to realize. We're having this cognitive dissonance. We're, we're making this differentiation between, between... If it's not good, it's bad. Exactly. There we go. If it's not good, it's bad. It's, it's, we are looking at it in black and white terms right now, and we need to look at it in black and white terms right now, because if we don't look at it in black and white terms, well, we're back to the same rut where we came. Mm-hmm. A little bit of this isn't going to hurt, and a little bit of that isn't going to hurt, because you know what? It's like the guy, it's the, the person who <coughs> constantly, on a regular basis, puts his life in jeopardy. Why does he put in life in jeopardy? Because he doesn't realize that he can die from that. He's He lives in this kind of, you know those people who are, eating all the bad foods and living a very unhealthy lifestyle or, or something simple, texting while they're driving. They don't realize that this stuff could be lethal, so they do it. But if it would be coming to jumping into a fire, they're not going to do that. We all have this natural inclination to preserve life. No normal sane person is going to jump into a fire. So why is the normal sane person texting while they're driving? Because they're blinded. They don't realize that this act could be lethal. So on one hand, you could say, yes, there's a difference between one Avera and another Avera. But essentially, they all rip us apart from Hashem. And that's what we can't forget. So right now, we're going very hardcore. At the end of the chapter, we're going to start discussing differentiations. But at this point, what we need to know is, 
A person only sins if they're absolutely crazy. You have to be insane to sin. What are you thinking? You would die rather than, than separate yourself from Hashem in idol worship. And then you're making this differentiation. What are you thinking? In the act of sin, you're separating from Hashem. You can't get crazier than that. Okay, so let, let's look at this lady. She is committing adultery, and yet she would rather die rather than serve idols. Now, it's not, you can say, well, what if she doesn't believe? But she is willing to die even rather than bow down to an idol, even if she doesn't believe in her heart. So she could say, well, she believes in God, and she'll bow down to the idol to save her life. Yes, people have done that. But for the most part, Jews don't do that. They would rather die than commit an empty act where their heart is not in it at all to bow down to an idol. So this woman, even if this idol worship would consist merely of an empty act of prostrating herself before the idolized object without any belief in her heart in the validity of idol worship. Now, if her hidden love of God has the power to enable her to face death rather than be separated from him, surely then it is within its power to overcome the temptation and lust for adultery, which is lighter suffering than death. May God protect us. Notice that he is equating giving up temptation as, as uh, suffering. He's not saying it's easy. He's saying it's suffering, but you have to equate. The person was, is, would rather die. Now, okay, that's very, very painful. That's the utmost, dying. But giving up a temptation, that's suffering too, but it's on a much lighter scale. scale. And here, she's willing to separate from Hashem for, and to n- not endure a smaller, lighter amount of suffering while she would endure the utmost in suffering and torture rather than bow down to the idol. She's making this differentiation out of insanity. It is only the spirit of folly, the notion that her sin will not tear her away from godliness that leads her to commit adultery. It might be argued, however, that she differentiates between idolatry and adultery. She regards the former as much more heinous and thus more certain to tear her away from God than the latter. Perhaps this differentiation, not the spirit of folly, is why she would sacrifice her life rather than practice idolatry. Yet at the same time, she would not sacrifice her temptation for adultery. In answer, the Alter Rebbe states, so the Alter Rebbe is now explaining what is she thinking when she, she's making a differentiation? She's saying that there's a difference between adultery and idolatry. Adult, idolatry, bowing down to an idol in her mind, is much more severe than, than having adultery. So this is what the Alter Rebbe says. This distinction that she makes between the prohibition against idolatry and that against adultery is also but a spirit of folly, folly stemming from the klipa. It renders her insensitive. Sorry, it renders her insensitive to the enormous breach between herself and God that is created by every sin. If she were aware of this breach, she certainly would overcome her desire and refrain from sin. Yet the spirit of infolly envelops the divine soul only up to, but not including its faculty of chachma, which as explained in chapter 18, represents the power of faith in God. This faith is unaffected by the spirit of folly because of the divine light that is clothed in the faculty of chachma, as explained above. 
Therefore, when she is confronted with a matter that directly bears a fa- upon faith of God, such as idolatry, where the spirit of folly is powerless, she would willingly sacrifice her life. But when faced with temptation for adultery, where the spirit of folly can and does conceal her faith in God and her hidden love for him, she succumbs. As stated, the subjective distinction between the two stems from foolishness and insensitivity. So we have this point within us that when it's triggered, it explodes. That's our atomic bomb. And that's our faith in God. At that point, idolatry, there's no two ways about it. Everybody knows bowing down to an idol means separating themselves from faith in God. So at that point, our inner deepest self awakens and says, this is not who I am. I never want to be separate from Hashem. And the person is willing to die. But the reason why this woman is able to make this distinction between adultery and idolatry is because the spirit of folly is able to cover up the entire soul only up until that point. So she makes this distinction because her, her mind is blurred. She's not thinking clearly. She's not able to. It's so steeped in the klipa that she feels like there's a difference. She doesn't realize. It, there's, there's, a, there's a way of understanding something intellectually, and then there's feeling it emotionally. When it comes to idol worship, a person feels it emotionally. It's not just intellectually they understand, this separates me, God forbid. This separates the person from God, and therefore, they will not bow down to the idol, they will die. No, what happens is this inner reaction, this allergic reaction, like they can't handle it. They're, that's it, for sure, I would never. So a person might even intellectually understand that sin means separation from Hashem. They're not feeling it. It's not translating into this instinctive reaction the way that idol worship does because the spirit of folly covers up everything until that point. What we're looking to realize is that to feel it inside of us that there is no difference between any sin, no matter which sin it is. It's so hard to, to say this. Isn't and it the other way around? It's not emotion, it's the intellect. In- intellect that... Is. The, the intellect that triggers our emotions. It's, it's good to have the intellect, but it's stage one. What, the lady that's giving up her life rather than bow down to the idol, she may know it intellectually, but she's feeling it internally. It's like, it's like, you know, like a person after the hard day of work, and they finally got all the kids to bed, and they're just relaxing. They don't want anybody to talk to them. They don't want to look at anything. I'm not speaking from personal experience. I'm just saying. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, God forbid, there's like an emergency. She's off the couch and she's running. What happened to you? You wanted to relax. There's no relaxing anymore. This is your emergency. When it comes, she feels it in her gut instinct. It's not like, oh, yeah, I hear, you know, whatever the emergency is. Now I need to get up. It's nothing like that. There's an internal, total, emotional investiture of the person at that time. That's what happens during being faced with idol worship. At idol worship... The person feels this total emergency. Everything else stops. Life comes to an end and it's over. There's no two ways about it. They're never going to bow down to an idol. So it's the intellect that triggers the emotion. Triggers, it triggers the emotion. Exactly. They feel it. It becomes palpable. It perv- what it is is the chachma is pervading their whole personality. At that point, it, it, go, it spreads everywhere. It's a ru- it affects every single part of them. From the top to the bottom, everything is affected. It's not just compartmentalized. I know this intellectually, but then there's me over here. The Chachma is then pervading their entire personality. This is an emergency. There's no two ways about it. They're going to have to run. But otherwise, no, everything else is asleep. They're relaxing. They, they don't see that there's an emergency. We're trying to realize this is an emergency. Every sin is an emergency. Every sin means separation from Hashem. If we realize that to the point that it affects our emotions, 
then we aced, then we're okay. Then we realize that we never want to commit this act. We only would be doing it if, God forbid, we are overcome by temporary insanity. So that's where we're up to till now. We're going to progress further next, next week, God willing. Um, opening now for questions. And Dini, did you want to revisit the question that you had? Um, yeah. So you were asking, you were saying that the person who gives it to a temptation, why are they worse than the klipa? Right? Yeah. You're saying, explain your question more. So um, it's still the, the way to explain the klipa, there's still a knowledge of, of God and whatever it is. And they, it's not a separate, but it's still doing their own thing. So in a way, sometimes when you sin, it's like, okay, I'm weak right now. I can't do this and this and this, but I still acknowledge I'm still, he's still there. I'm still part of it, but I'm just doing this right now. So how it's even worse than, than the klipa? Because the klipa is not, it's like less caring or less. Because the klipa is part of the plan. The sin is against the plan. What does klipa mean? Klipa, so the klipa really means a shell. But it, it stands for the forces of evil. The forces of evil, how low they are, they're all part of Hashem's because plan. Because it's part of the etzim. It's like just the, the dirt, they but it's no still part of the... They have no free will. They don't do anything of their own volition. Whatever they do, how gross and ugly it is, it's all here for the divine plan, for us to have freedom of choice. It's a creative test. But for us choosing it, that's free will, and that's why it's an even bigger sin, because we actually choose to fall into something that is negative. But the negative is negative because it was created to have a negative. So we have the choice to go good or negative. So choosing bad over good is a sin. I don't know, that's very convoluted. <laughs> no, no, it's that's very, very clear. It's like um, the bacteria. The bacteria itself is bad, but it only is becoming the ultimate of evil when it, has a, uh, has to, it attacks a person. In and of itself, it's, it's harmless, kind of. It's only when, this is examples from Rabbi Steinzels. I didn't quote it in his name because I wanted to remember oh, the details. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Once, once they're engaged, then it, be, it becomes manifest. Evil on its own is nothing. It's just a hurdle. It's the, it only becomes terrible once it, the person succumbs to it. But the person themselves falls lower than them because the evil itself never does anything against the divine plan. It's there to serve the plan. A person who does against Hashem's will is against the plan. He's not even part of the plan anymore. He's like, the, the, the klipa recognizes that Hashem is the master over everything. And by, by, by saying that he overcome insanity, like insanity, it's like giving us a break or something like that? Or it's just... It's, it's not giving us a break. It's explaining to us... I'm trying to justify my errors. Please help me. Listen. <laughs> insanity. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. <laughs> so exactly. So this was uh, this is about my question. It's like it's pro probably trying to. No, you know. it's trying to take your pleasure out of the averas. It's like, it's I like remember, have, when when someone I don't think a regular Jew that's trying their best to do to to serve God and they're having averas. I don't think they have a pleasure in having the averas. They just have that weak 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 moment that they they just can't. They're, they're not, not having a it. they're so not having pleasure in the actual avera. They're having a pleasure in the act, which is against Hashem. They're differentiating. Not necessarily. You, you you put the extreme example of isha sota, but right. it's not like little averos. It's not, people do it, but they don't even realize they don't have pleasure out of 
I don't know, not keeping Shabbos. It's just part of the routine. So then why are they doing it? Because they're being insane. No, um, we're talking about knowing. At this point, we're talking about knowing. Insanity is not knowing, basically. At this point, we're saying that the person who is doing this Avera, they're they're insane because they don't realize that they're separating from Hashem. We're talking about the main big ones. No, we're talking about each and every Avera. It's so... I can I can be try to be politically correct. We're saying no. We're only talking about the few big averas. That's not what the Altar is saying here. The Altar is saying each and every avera separates you from Hashem. But I think what you're also saying is that you need to have known really deeply that it's not just this surface thing that you don't know. Like you know, Balshuvas they walk into this stuff. And they right. That's know. what I was saying. I was saying that. <laughs> We have to differentiate between a person who knows that this is the wrong thing as doing it as a person who doesn't know that this is the wrong thing. And sometimes a person thinks they know, but they don't actually know. <laughs> I heard a story of Rabbi Itcher the Masmed. Rabbi Itcher the Masmed was an incredible chassid of the last generation. That he, he, unfortunately, he couldn't handle life in America because he, he said, here, he wrote back home, here in America there are people who eat meat and drink wine for pleasure. He couldn't even fathom such a concept. He went back to Russia. Unfortunately, he was killed. But um, he once—it was during the previous Rebbe's Fabringen—and he wanted to say something, but he, the Friedrich Rebbe never let him speak. He kept not letting him speak. And so afterwards, he said, "I realized why he didn't let me speak because he knew what I was going to say." What he wanted to say was, "It's only a chassid." There's, there's, there's an expression. Yedea is about Amalek. He knows his master and he intends to rebel against him. And he wanted to say, most people are not even at that level because they, they don't even know who their master is. He wanted to say at the Fabringen, it is only like a chassid that could be somebody who is somebody that knows his master and chooses to go against him. And the Freer Dicker Rebbe didn't let him speak. And he said, the reason why he didn't let me speak, let me speak is because even if he knows his master, he, a chassid never ever intends to go against his master. So... But the question is, so if you're in temporary insanity, are you forgiven for the sin? No. Since you're in temporary insanity. I mean, insanity. yes and no. What I'm trying to say is, we're not, take at this point, we're not, right, take yeah, the... Yeah, taking notes for work. Should that be... <laughs> At this point, we're not trying to exonerate ourselves. At this point, we're trying to achieve a most deepest level of awareness. Exonerating ourselves, you know, that's after the game is over. You know, got, you know, whenever, after 120 years, then the person can bring up all their excuses, why they did this and why they did that. Right now, we're in the thick of the battle. At this point, we, wanna, we want to achieve true unity with Hashem. So we're trying to reach a new level of awareness. We're trying to say, hey, Let's get to this place in yourself where the choice is very easy. Let's come to the place within ourselves where it's so easy. Idolatry. Would you ever bow down to an idol? No, I would never bow down to an idol. A Jewish person will sacrifice their self, their life, so as not to bow down to even an idol. So we're saying, even if they're gun to the head, even if they're shoot. gun to the head, shoot. A, a Jew will just do that. Can I ask, what does that mean in today's day? Today's age. What is bowing down to an idol? So t- in today's day and age, we don't have. This is such a clear, a lot of times we don't have such a clear example. And in fact, <coughs> Rabbi Steinsaltz tells that he was once giving class, and somebody said, in today's day and age, people would bow down, would give up their life rather than bow down to an idol. 
And um, he said he, he said he didn't have the answer to him. Yeah. I also the next day, he was speaking in an extremely secular group in, to an extremely secular group of Israelis, and he decided he's going to give it to them a little bit. He's going to be very provocative. He's going to say like mean things to like get them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what he was saying because he didn't say, but he was saying very strong terms to these people. And all of a sudden, at the back of the room, a young man got up and he said, "Listen." He's not religious, his father's not religious, his grandfather left religion ages ago, but if somebody would tell him to bow down to an idol, he would die. This is what the little kid said, the 24-year-old boy. And he said, here I have my answer. Even in today's day and age, if a Jew is faced with this test of faith, he would die. Is there going to be an exception? We always have freedom of choice, even down to that choice. But generally speaking, it's not even difficult. You see people go to like Japan, there's Buddhas and they... They bow down to them. They think that's a thing. I wouldn't do that. Is that I wouldn't. So somebody who's bowing down to that kind of, they don't, no. they don't, they're not equating it with idol worship. They're not realizing it that, that it's idol worship. They, they're not saying there's no God. They're not saying I am. They're not, as far as I understand, a lot of the times they're doing this in like a spiritual pursuit, not realizing that this is idol but worship. But that's disrespectful. I still believe in this generation. Yeah. People attempt to uh, separate their intellectual and, and not die. They'll say, okay, I, I'll just do it because whatever, but I, I, I still believe Hashem is Hashem. Well, this is we how can, we live our we lives. Can, and I, I don't think, yeah, we can I'm sorry, say that. I don't think I'm, I'm that level, I'm, I will share it, to die and not do something that, you know what, I still believe in Hashem, but I'll that, just do it. That's what you're saying because you're not in that space. When a per- this, your Chachma has not been activated. When a person comes to that space, they don't realize the trigger that's going to happen to them. They don't realize all of a sudden, you know, like, you hear these stories of the mother that, like, they saw the car coming and then they picked yeah, up the car. Yeah, it's like the emergency mode that he's just... If you would ask him. the mother, do you have the power to pick up the car? She would say no. I don't... Other people, I don't have the power. Yeah, because I get it. She hasn't been, she hasn't been in that situation. When a person is put in that situation, they don't realize the power that they have within themselves. They will do it. They will die. You, are you just saying just literally just like bowing down or like doing that religion, taking over the religion? No, I'm just saying bowing. just bowing doing down just without, without even believing in it, just bowing down. Right. And you do see like, like the story of Daniel Pearl who was beheaded. In his last like moments, what he was saying is, I'm a Jew. That's that's his essential core. It's no matter what kind of his parents. But I, I don't know what what have the, what so now. But they 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 did write a book about. Didn't his father write a book with on this statement? Like I'm a Jew, and, right? Basically, our exercise uh-huh. or our goal for unity with Hashem, not just to do the mitzvah, to make. The Chokhmah realize to give uh, that spark at the moment of deciding to do an Avera smaller or to give that energy and spread this knowledge to all of our emotions. That's right. right? That's right. Exactly that. We're trying to be able to tap into the power of Chachma in our everyday decisions. Not just when it comes to idol worship, but it comes to any decision that we have. We want to be able to tap into this Chachma that we have. And so what we need to do is we need to equate it with idol worship. Once we start equating it with idol worship, then we're like, 
No, I would never do that. How would I do that? This is idol worship. I never want to separate from Hashem. Is it um, me talking, taking me personally? I just don't. 